Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear Robert Pinsky speaking at the Key West Literary Seminar. Robert Pinsky is one of today's foremost poets and critics. He believes poetry plays an important role in public life, and as former poet laureate, he founded the Favorite Poem Project. He has authored a dozen books of poetry, a highly acclaimed translation of Dante's Inferno, numerous critical books and essays, and is the editor of several poetry anthologies. He currently teaches at Boston University and is the poetry editor for Slate. As you'll hear in this talk, for Robert Pinsky, poetry is strongly rooted in music as a source for both inspiration and rhythm. He also talks about the nature of memory and the need to consult our ancestors without worshiping them and how modernism remembers differently than previous styles of poetry. Overall, Pinsky argues that modernism is a form of memory that wants to disrupt complacency. He'll quote some favorites, including John Keats, William Carlos Williams, and Ezra Pound. The Key West Literary Seminar was founded in 1983 and is dedicated to supporting American writers. Each January, the seminar hosts an international gathering of readers and writers. In 2010, Robert Pinsky gave the keynote address, known as the John Hersey Memorial Address. Here is Robert Pinsky. When I said that I was going to speak in part about memory, I hadn't uh, realized that I was going to be in a space, <laughs> uh, a space in which Jose Marti was going to speak. I thought that I was intimidated by all of the uh, immensely gifted and uh, distinguished poets with uh, uh, our maestro Richard Wilbur at the apex, and I thought that was um, speaking with the national anthem. <laughs> I wish I were more brave and it's too late to be free in relation to the assignment, um, but it increases the honor. Uh, it increases the honor to realize that this is um, associated with Marti and indeed with the idea of memory. I'm going to uh, muse about the idea of the modern and the idea of memory and really I'm just going to present you with a series of quotations and rather than having a kind of academic proposal I'm going to make to you, I'm going to muse about those quotations and it occurred to me that um, one of the poets I'm going to quote is the great modernist, probably the one closest to my heart, William Carlos Williams, that Marti and Williams, though Marti is a different generation, um, they share an idea that is probably more European and uh, Latin American than North American. Now, Williams is named Carlos not by accident. He grew up in a household in which Spanish as well as French were, were main languages. And um, he is part Puerto Rican and he, his father, he said, who's English, was a European. And there is the European idea where we find it in Chekhov plays, we find it in Benito Perez Galdós novels. The scientist, often is also the person who wants new ideas in art. The medical doctor who wants to uh, vaccinate the children and drain the swamps uh, also ad advocates uh, new kinds of art and uh, indeed may wind up involved in something like the 
Partido Revolucionario Cubano. Um, the quotation that I'm going to start with to make my way towards Williams, and I hope a little past Williams, is one I've known a long time and thought I understood for years. And lately, it's been giving me this pleasure to think about one of the most familiar quotations in English poetry. I'm getting to the age where a certain considerable number of your friends die. And death starts becoming not as when you're in your 20s and 30s, exotic and, and, and large and uh, almost romanticized. It's part of life. And the lines I'm thinking about are from Keats's great poem, um, The Ode to a Nightingale, when he says, Thou art not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. You were not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. What does it mean to be born for death? I think my old literary understanding of it, which I still ascribe to, is that um, Keats craves to be closer to nature, but the more conscious of it is, the more different from it he is. That doesn't explain why I feel this joy and happiness when I read those lines or play them to myself in my head in the airplane. You are not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. What does it mean to be born for death? In a famous classical tag, it's in the Bible, it's in Swift, it's in Shakespeare, the human animal is a kind of pathetic creature. Claws are pretty much useless as weapons, as are its teeth. The hide, it only has fur and patches. It can swim a little, not very well. It can climb, not as well as most animals. It can run a bit, not as fast as the fastest animals. It's kind of weak but it has thrived. Indeed, it's predominated, possibly as a catastrophe for the rest of life, it's, we have predominated. And um, this isn't simply because we're clever. It's because we have found ways, because we are born for death, we devise architecture and poetry and from very early on, we had to have means that one generation would know where were the best places for food at what time of year, what were suitable marriage customs or burial customs. Uh, knowledge is passed not only between peers, but from the generation. So to be born for death is to need to create memory that is larger than one generation so that um, Cuban-American kids who come to this building 20 and 30 and 40 years from now may well remember Jose Marti, they may remember us, they remember Fidel and Raul, they remember many things, but it will be a different world. And Keats, he says that the bird sings the same song as its grandpa and its grandma, and the, I don't know if the 
I have no idea if Nightingale's songs were gender specific, but the preceding generations and the coming generations, he says, sing the same song, possibly the same one heard by Ruth, Ruth the famous voluntary exile who left her home of Moab to be in the alien corn. Not for love of her husband, for love of her mother-in-law. She left her home of Moab. Moab is the past. We can't go back to Moab. And we are hungry. We do tread Keats down. No matter how much you love Keats, or no matter how much you love the ode to a nightingale, you do not intend to spend the rest of your life thinking only the thoughts of the ode to a nightingale. We are hungry for our own lives, our own thoughts, our own poems. And indeed, as if as a thought experiment, you said, I am going to try to simply give myself to Keats, you would damage the ode to a nightingale. You would desiccate it. You would destroy it. Because the treasure that a generation gives to the next generation can only be properly cared for if it's transformed. It's in the nature of us as an animal that we must pass something on that we got from the old ones. And uh, it is necessary uh, that we change it or we're betraying it. I was in Africa three years ago now. And I heard a sentence that, if there's such a thing as hearing a sentence that changes your life or crystallizes something, uh, happened for me. They took, they took me to see a Sangomo. Sangomo's trivializing translation would be fortune teller. And the guy who took me to see the Sangomo said, I'm a Zulu man. You must understand, I am very proud of our Zulu culture. And you must understand that in our Zulu culture, you know, you're going to see the Sangomo go into a trance. And you can ask the Sangomo questions, which the Sangomo will ask the ancestors. The Sangomo communicates with the ancestors, and they will tell you things about your future or things you want to know. But you must understand, in our Zulu culture, we do not worship our ancestors. We do not worship our ancestors. We consult them. I felt I had discovered my religion. Uh, it crystallized a lot for me. And um, I'm going to try to define the modern as a form of memory, as a very specific form of memory. And I'll give you another example that is pre-modern. I will recite a two-line poem to you. On love, on grief, on every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. Advantage of a two-line poem is you can say it twice <laughs> without people rebelling. On love, on grief, on every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. The author of the poem was born in, um, died in 1865 in a very long life. So he was born towards the end, 
of the 18th century, died well into the 19th century. Anti-royalist, one of the great classical scholars, you consider one of the great poets in Latin of his time. Very, very wealthy, very well educated. I am not very, very wealthy. I'm not well educated in the way that Walter Savage Landor was. I mean, he was a real great scholar of Greek and Latin. I'm not an English aristocrat. I suppose I'm anti-royalist, but I don't get the opportunities he had to express it. He said he, would, he said he would be really delighted to see a scoundrel like the King of England hung between two scoundrels like the Archbishops of uh, York and Canterbury. <laughs> I am quite a different character from Landor, and I'm sure I pronounce the English language somewhat differently from the way he does. But one reason that poem seems so great to me, three times at the beginning, I put my upper teeth on my lower lip, on love, on grief, on every human thing. Three times near the end, I purse my lips. Time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. The sounds were orchestrated so beautifully and subtly that I doubt he was thinking about it consciously, and I knew those lines for years before I thought about that physiological fact. But in a form of cultural memory, I put my born in the 20th century Jewish New Jersey teeth on my lip, and then I pursed my lips exactly in those times on love, on grief, and every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. And I could go on and on about the sounds in the poem, the E sounds and all the other things it does. And it's, I suppose it's quite cool when you refresh a cliche, so the cliche that time flies or time has wings is refreshed by uh, the notion that time, wings don't only propel, wings can sprinkle too. But what really most interests me about what the poem says is that the forgetting is sprinkled. It's not an engulfing. It's not a flood. It's not a torrent. On love, on grief, on every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. And you think about the word lethal. I did do a little homework. And lethal is like two different languages. Lethe, you, you know, the great thing about a poem like that is you don't have to know what lethe is. You don't have to look it up. Lethe is whatever time, uh, is whatever time sprinkles on everything. <laughs> that's really true. That, you know what you need. That's all you really need to know. Uh, it turns out that uh, the Greek word for forgetting, which has an L-T-H in it, something, happens to be similar to the Latin word for death. And they're not related words. And that's another little shimmering of memory of those two languages together in a process related to what Keats is talking about. In short, I remember Lander's poem 
I say it to you, I do those things with my mouth, and tiny bones in your ears vibrate. And a certain number of you do think some equivalent of, that's cool when you hear the poem. The poem is at the threshold of the transformation we call modernism, a phenomenon so powerful that we invented postmodernism. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that I personally feel that I am a neo-modernist. <laughs> I'll recite another poem to you. I always picture the author of this poem looking at his office window. He had another profession besides being a poet. I picture him looking at his office window at some guys working on the roof across the way. I encourage you to pay attention to the sounds as you did with the lander. Now they're resting in the fleckless light separately and in unison, like the sacks of sifted stone stacked regularly by twos about the flat roof and ready to be after lunch to be strewn. The copper in eight-foot strips has been beaten lengthwise at right angles and lies ready to edge the coping. One still chewing picks up a copper strip and runs his eye along it. The poem to me demonstrates the author William Carlos Williams and Ezra Pound went to college together. It demonstrates how much for that generation the musical quality of poetry was not abandoned by the modern. Uh, I was blessed when I was 17 years old that my freshman English teacher made, made us read Ezra Pound's The ABC of Reading. And one of the first pages of that book, he says, and it's possible to disagree with this, but it's a good thing to sort of hear and think about. He says, music atrophies when it get, grows too far away from dance. Poetry atrophies when it grows too far away from music. Music atrophies when it grows too far away from dance. Poetry atrophies when it grows too far away from music. And then he says, I don't mean that only good poetry is lyric poetry. He says, Bach and Mozart always suggest bodily movement. So it doesn't have to be too literal. You don't have to write song lyrics. You don't necessarily have to write pentameter couplets like Lander's pentameter couplets. You might decide to begin the poem in the key of eh, with a little variation. The next chord in the harmonic structure is ooh. Now they are resting in the fleckless light separately. Now they are resting in the fleckless light separately and in unison like the sacks of sifted stone stacked, sacks of sifted stone stacked regularly by twos about the flat roof, ready after lunch to be strewn. And then one of my favorite stanzas in poetry, the copper in eight-foot strips has been beaten lengthwise at right angles and lies ready to edge the coping. It's so beautiful. The copper in eight-foot strips has been beaten lengthwise at right angles and lies ready to edge the coping. Next line, one still chewing. It's the only thing like an end rhyme in the poem and it's grammatical rhyme. One still chewing picks up a copper strip 
picks up a copper strip and runs his eye along it. That is, you know, a lot of poems written in rhyme and meter lack musicality, as do many, many poems written in so-called free verse. And a poem like that, written in so-called free verse, is as musical as writing can be. Williams is not very far from music. Poetry in the Western European tradition that we inherit, it has its roots in courts. And a pre-modernist idea of poetry celebrates, it's rather like the two patriotic uh, uh, martial anthems that we heard. Where there's lots of other kinds of music. When you celebrate the country, you hear things that sound a lot like people should march to them. And I, I don't know the words of the, of the, uh, the Cuban anthem, but we know that the words of the American anthem are about a battle, the spectacle of the battle. Um, poetry for a long time praised the ruling order. One of my favorite poets, Ben Johnson, wrote a lot of poems celebrating the king and the king's birthday and all those poems by Dunn and Herbert and people flattering, probably quite sincerely flattering the uh, rulers. You celebrate and praise the official religion, the majority of religion. And uh, like a lot of art, its origins have a lot to do with the social structure and the social hierarchy. And uh, without blessing all the political views of Ezra Pound or Marinetti or all sorts of modernists, we can say one of the basic things about modernism is that it remembers differently. Instead of remembering the great battles and the noble kings and the religious principles, it will remember things you don't necessarily think are to be remembered. The copper in eight-foot strips has been beaten lengthwise at right angles and lies ready to itch the coping. Just to assert that you can use those cadences and make that observation, and it is equally poetic and maybe more like the beautiful poetry of uh, Sir Philip Sidney or Keats, then if you try to simply reproduce Philip Sidney or Keats, that's part of the modern idea. And we're not orphaned. That is, Williams is remembering the whole history of poetry in that poem. Uh, and if I can say Landor's poem, I am consulting him, my ancestor, Walter Savage Lander, not my literal ancestor, I hasten to unnecessarily explain to you, um, but my ancestor. And if he does have living ancestors, descendants who uh, have, don't care about poetry and don't read his poetry, I am Lander's descendant. They just happen to be descended from his body. I'm his real descendant of his spirit. Um, Williams is not orphaned, and I am not orphaned we do consult the ancestors. I'm going to read you another poem. This poem um, is not by a professional poet. There's this interesting institution in uh, uh, England, the Foundling Hospital. The Foundling Hospital was founded, believe it or not, the painter Hogarth and the composer Handel had a lot to do with the founding of this institution. Uh, and they founded it largely because there were a tremendous number of abandoned infants. 
And uh, this was a place where a woman could come and leave a newborn confident that it would be not only cared for, but indeed educated. Kind of a great thing, you know, we read so much horrible stuff that our composers and painters and poets do. It's, it's like finding out that Chekhov was a good person. Thank God, you know. Handel and, Handel and Hogarth did something good. And when these women, they often would dress the infant very beautifully. They would, um, they would clearly use what little resources they had to provide the infant with something beautiful. And oddly enough, I've seen the huge display of very often the baby was left with a poem. The mother writes a poem, and this one was tremendously striking to me. This is a poem that, that was left with an infant in the 18th century in the Foundling Hospital. Hard is my lot in deep distress to have no help where most should find Sure, nature meant her sacred laws should men as strong as women bind. Regardless he, unable I, to keep this image of my heart. Incredibly good writing, isn't it? Regardless he, unable I, to keep this image of my heart. Tis vile to murder, hard to starve and death almost to me to part. If fortune should her favors give that I in better plight may live, I'd try to have my boy again and train him up the best of men. The ending of the poem is eerie because it's either in a subjunctive mood entertaining the idea of somehow having the child again or more likely, if my fortune becomes better, I will have a boy child, which will in some sense be this child. If fortune should her favors give that I in better plight may live, I'd try, that's the subjunctive, I'd try to have my boy again and train him up the best of men. Modernism is a form of memory that wants to disrupt complacency. Or dis it, this is the modernism as I perceived it when I was given the ABC of reading and uh, had a wonderful uh, Paul Fussell, my freshman English teacher, who gave his poems by living poets and um, the ABC of reading. And this psychological fix that this woman is in and her decision among that of many, many women who are in that fix. As I say, the wall was covered with poems. This is the best one that I, I saw. Um, there's something profound in that impulse. And the always looking for a way of looking things that is at things that's left out that in a way the answer of the good poet, the answer of the good receiver of tradition always has to be no. Say, so, you no, know, I'm gonna do it a different way. And that's very ambitious. Um, 
I think that the poetry I don't like in today's world in two different directions is reactionary to modernism. It's either reactionary by saying, you know, we can't really say very much. We can't do language itself is yeah, not going to do it. Or we should go back to the good old days, the mythological good old days, which everybody sort of chanted Longfellow while they were drinking mead or something. <laughs> um, I'll get to a couple of those poems that I read when I was 17. But first, here's a quotation from a psychoanalytic writer. Um, this is the great uh, uh, psychoanalytic writer, Hans Lowald, musing on a footnote of Sigmund Freud's. And it's on this uh, same subject. In a way, it's a psychological parallel to the cultural process that I'm trying to think about. Lowald writes, He's thinking about Freud's footnote in The Interpretation of Dreams about the ghosts of the underworld, as in the Odyssey and the Aeneid and that whole, the ghosts of the underworld hungry for and awakened by blood. And often they want the blood of the living souls. Lowell's sentences, the formula I'll give away uh, that he says at the climax is how do you turn a ghost into an ancestor. Lowell, harking back to the thirsty shades of the classic underworld, writes, the transference neurosis, in the technical sense of the establishment and resolution of it in the analytic process, is due to the blood of recognition, which the patient's unconscious is given to taste, so that the old ghosts may reawaken to life. You taste the blood of recognition so the old ghosts awaken to life. This is the part of his writing I like. His, those who know ghosts tell us, <laughs> those who know ghosts tell us that they long to be released from their ghost life and led to rest as ancestors. As ancestors, they live forth in the present generation while as ghosts, they are compelled to haunt the present generation with their shadow life. That enterprise, the transition of ghosts to ancestors by offering recognition, is a benign version of what I take to be the modernist principle, re-excavation and renewal of the past. It reminds me of what the Sangomo said to me, rather the man who took me to the Sangomo. We do not worship our ancestors. We consult them. We do not worship our ancestors. We consult them. And if we're going to be ambitious in our art, we must be consulting them, and we mustn't be worshiping them. And um, I'll give you an example one of those poems I read so long ago, and I was blessed in that I just couldn't make a distinction. I was too new to the whole thing and blessedly ignorant. Allen Ginsberg didn't seem very different from T.S. Eliot to me. <laughs> and I believe that I was correct. 
that Allen Ginsberg is T.S. Eliot's immediate, he really is his son, uh, in the sort of uh, ecstatic perception of uh, spirituality in the squalor of urban life, the urban landscape, and in cadences. In, the, in Ginsberg's journals, he has a dream about Eliot, partly sexual. And he does imitations of Eliot's blank verse, too. So I, it's not that I was crazy or stupid. Um, here's the closing passage of Ginsberg's poem, Walt Whitman in the Supermarket. Where are we going, Walt Whitman? The doors close in an hour. Which way does your beard point tonight? I touch your book and dream of our odyssey in the supermarket and feel absurd. Will we walk all night through solitary streets? The trees add shade to shade. Lights out in the houses. We'll both be lonely. Will we stroll dreaming of the lost America of love, past blue automobiles in driveways, home to our silent cottage? Ah, dear father, graybeard, lonely old courage teacher, what America did you have when Charon quit pulling his ferry and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Lethe? Ah, dear father, graybeard, lonely old courage teacher, what America did you have when Cairon quits pulling his ferry and you got out on a smoking bank and stood watching the boat disappear on the black waters of Lethe? Let me propose to you that Lethe, forgetting, associated by that pun with death, it's an essential component of memory. To get philosophical about it, you can't imagine the idea of memory without the idea of forgetting. There's no such thing as forgetting without the concept of memory. Really, there should be a word that means the process of forgetting and remembering. And it's what Lander's couplet on love and grief and every human thing, time sprinkles Lethe's water, is about. And it's what this Ginsburg passage is about. And like, both of these are never entirely perfect. We know that forgetting is never total. It's part of what the whole Freud idea is, isn't it? Somewhere it's remembered. When I was doing the favorite poem project, uh, I, many letters, many people told me about a relative who had had a stroke or dementia suddenly could recite Paradise Lost or Evangeline, couldn't before, that it was in there, buried in there somewhere. Memory is never perfect, even if I have the poem or the phone number perfectly by memory. Long Branch 6, 4157. Every time you say it, you have a slightly different feeling about it. It's never perfectly reproduced the same way. Forgetting is never perfect. Memory is never perfect. They're always operating together psychologically and culturally. And the great cultural movement of the modernist moment was to just as ambitiously as something that was nationalistic or pietistic, you know, great poems of that kind, was to do it in the supermarket, 
or looking at the woofer or using naughty words or being absurd, not, not speaking the uh, uh, official universal language of profundity. To disrupt it, to change it. In my mind, it's had a terrific urgency in uh, American culture. I'll read a great poem of that kind. But let me also tell you, and I, 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 I'm not going to apologize for seeing the grandstand or special plead. It's a real truth uh, that along with um, uh, being given, uh, uh, with reading Ginsburg's Howell and Tom Gunn's Tamer and Hawk, uh, the best-known poem of Richard Wilbur's Love Calls Us to the Things of This World, an anthology piece that he may be sick of, I can well remember. I'm old enough that when I was a kid, many, many, many more people had clotheslines with pulleys than had clothes dryers. In fact, I don't think we knew anybody when I was a kid who had a clothes dryer. And it was one of the ways that moms gossiped and made fun of their kids, was talking to one another while screeching the uh, pulleys. The eye opens to a cry of pulleys, inspirited from sleep. The astounded soul hangs for a moment, bodiless and simple as false dawn. Outside the open window, the morning air is all awash with angels. I felt the disruption and I felt the relief. For me, it was not that different from reading the Ginsberg. Because that impulse, you know, you could find it in Frost. He says in directive, uh, if you'll follow the directions of one who only has at heart, you're getting lost. Um, from a boy's will on, Frost is always questioning uh, easy gold of um, it was the easy gold of Fay and Elf. He's always trying to consult and then disrupt or change something. Um, I grew up among clotheslines and also grew up among heavy nuns. <laughs> so that let there be bring them down from their ruddy gallows. Let there be clean linen for the backs of thieves. Let lovers go fresh and sweet to be undone, and the heaviest nuns walk on a pure floating of dark habits, keeping their difficult balance. And uh, nuns and done, it's the same as the, now they're resting in the fleckless light. It's the musical ear. Um, I'll give you two more quotations and then we can uh, proceed to the party. <laughs> Whatever that word is, that would mean the process of remembering and forgetting, and all the choices and inadvertent responses that are part of that, um, it seems to me that it's central and fundamental. And Williams, I forgot to bring with me his wonderful poem, um, Dedication for Plot of Ground, where he imitates that typical American story where the second husband's grandmother tried to take the kids, but when she got stranded in Puerto Rico, she went from San Juan to Havana, and then when she got to Brooklyn, she had the kids and she made this piece of, nobody can follow the story, which is a typical family story. Uh, I mean, it's that thing where one generation hears the grandparents say, no, that wasn't Bernie Bargolas' wife. His second wife went to his, his cousin was the other Bernie. <laughs> they never start at the beginning, and it never ends. 
And that immigrant story for me is part of the historical questions that William's coming from a complicated immigrant family um, that he tries to, uh, that he makes part of this famous poem. The poem was always published with the title, title To Elsie. I think it's editors that gave it the title To Elsie. I don't think William's ever called it To Elsie. And he embedded it in Spring and All, which is a work of prose and verse where some of the sections have Roman numerals, some have Arabic numerals, they don't go in order. So you go from section B to section Roman numeral LVII, and then section nine. <laughs> and it's extremely puckish and defiant and um, naughty. The word pure in the poem always, uh, in this context, makes me think of the fact that neither memory nor forgetting is pure. Neither is ever perfect. They're always uh, dancing with one another, always collaborating. But you, need, you mustn't let yourself be an orphan. Something has to be happening, and then you mustn't let yourself just be a slave either. The pure products of America go crazy. Mountain folk from Kentucky or the rib north end of Jersey with its isolate lakes and valleys, its deaf mutes, thieves, old names and promiscuity between devil-may-care men who have taken to railroading out of sheer lust of adventure and young slatterns bathed in filth from Monday to Saturday to be tricked out that night with gauds from imaginations which have no peasant traditions to give them character, but flutter and flaunt sheer rags, succumbing without emotion save numbed terror under some hedge of chokecherry or viburnum which they cannot express. Unless it be that marriage, perhaps with a dash of Indian blood, will throw up a girl so desperate, so hemmed round with disease or murder, that she'll be rescued by an agent, reared by the state, and sent out at 15 to work in some hard-pressed house in the suburbs. Some doctor's family, some Elsie. Voluptuous water expressing with broken brain the truth about us her great ungainly hips and flopping breasts addressed to cheap jewelry and rich young men with fine eyes as if the earth under our feet were an excrement of some sky and we degraded prisoners destined to hunger until we eat filth while the imagination strains after deer going by fields of goldenrod in the stifling heat of September. Somehow, it seems to destroy us. It is only an isolate flex that something is given off. No one to witness and adjust. No one to drive the car. It's a, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a song, a lyric on a kind of epic scale about improvising a history. And um, I admire the way he introduces his own family into it rather obliquely, keeps this young woman at the center of it. And uh, I love the ambition of it and that daring ending of no one to witness and address just, no one to drive the car. You know, for generations, poets describe the landscape as you see it uh, when you take a walk through it, a la Wordsworth. In The Road to the Contagious Hospital, in the same sequence, Williams writes about the twiggy outstanding stuff. He describes the landscape as you see it from a car. And to a young housewife, he says, uh, 
as I pass driving, my, the wheels of the car over the leaves, I bow as I pass driving. And you, you can bow as you drive. Williams invented that, <laughs> that is, he noticed it. Uh, and uh, he described the landscape not as you walk through it, but as you drive through it. I began by telling you that I have this mysterious joy that I feel um, when I read, Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down the way they do people. We're proud to tread Keats down, and we hope that future generations will tread us down, um, that we'll be worth treading down. And for me, it's a perception of uh, understanding that your mortality is part of a very significant process. And to be, to be born for death is uh, noble and mysterious and inspiring and part of a tremendously uh, ambitious and adventuresome uh, project. Jose Marti was born for death. We are, we are his children. And um, I suppose the bad things we do, you know, the, the evil is born for death, too. Uh, but the project of a life is larger. Not only, but notably, an artist's life is larger. And in this sense, I believe, it's one reason I get very annoyed at marketing of poetry. People sometimes accuse me of promoting poetry, or being a missionary for poetry. Shit, no. Uh, poetry is fundamental and central. We should take care of it because it's a treasure that the ancestors gave us we have to give to the kids. But it's larger than pop music or movies because of its intimacy and because it's, you know, it's right at the middle of us. We do it with our bodies. We do it with our lips and tongues and ears and breath. And... Um, that perception can make your death seem um, part of a good thing, part of a significant uh, project. I'll close by, I'll close by reading um, a passage from Dante's Paradiso, the very last uh, canto of the Paradiso. And uh, it's my own translation. I skip a terzina, so maybe I'm not entitled to call it a translation. I skipped, there's a Tertina in which uh, San Bernardo, Dante says, uh, St. Bernard told me to look up, but I was already looking up, so it didn't matter. <laughs> I, I mean, I could, I could write literary criticism about it, but it, it impeded what I wanted to, uh, to make it. And in this, I will close by reading this, it's just uh, 15 lines. I'll close by reading it to you. And I believe that in this passage, as I read it anyway, Dante understands that he will die soon. He understands his mortality. And he has a rather peaceful, almost celebratory perception of that. And he ends with the image he borrows from Virgil. It's the image of the Sibyl. Uh, Virgil says, people loathed the Sibyl. Sibyl knew everything. She knew everything that had ever happened. She knew everything that ever would happen. And she not only knew it, she wrote it down. She wrote it on leaves. 
that were extremely thin. And Virgil says, people loathed the Sibyl because when you got to her temple, as soon as the door began to turn on its hinges, at the first hint of breeze, the leaves went up in a tremendous mess, <laughs> a chaos, um, so that no one could ever read anything that she wrote. Um, to me, this is an image of knowledge being real and almost unattainable. Truth exists and is almost impossible to attain. Art is real and is almost insuperably difficult, um, which is why we need more than one generation to work on it. Um, from the last canto of Paradise, Paradiso 33, lines 46 through 48 and 52 through 66. As I drew nearer to the end of all desire, I brought my longing's ardor to a final height, just as I ought. My vision becoming pure entered more and more the beam of that high light that shines on its own truth. From then, my seeing became too large for speech, which fails at a sight beyond all boundaries, at memory's undoing, as when the dreamer sees. And after the dream, the passion endures, imprinted on his being, though he can't recall the rest. I am the same. Inside my heart, although my vision is almost entirely faded, droplets of its sweetness come, the way the sun dissolves the snow's crust, the way in the wind that stirred the light leaves, the oracle that the Sibyl wrote was lost. Thank you all. That was Robert Pinsky speaking at the Key West Literary Seminar on January 7, 2010. You can learn more about the seminar at kwls.org. Robert Pinsky's most recent book of poetry is Gulf Music, published in 2007. You can read more about Robert Pinsky, his poetry and criticism, at poetryfoundation.org. You'll also find many other articles about poets and poetry, an online archive of more than 9,000 poems, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from PoetryFoundation.org.